Well, our names are Teresa and Gumby. Welcome to Escaping Society. We wrote our own song so we wouldn't have to pay for anyone else's copyright infringement. And we live in a van and we eat from the trash. Making this podcast open for cash. You better listen up because we probably won't last. Because we can't compete with nonsense. Hypnotizing nonsense. episode 93 off the rails and I am certainly feeling a little bit off the rails um, as of late Gumby how are you doing I'd agree (laughs) we uh we're in well we're on the Blue Ridge Parkway um just outside of Waynesboro Virginia where we have been exploring and learning all about how to uh, live in a van in Waynesboro and I just wanted to get this uh, story in because I just feel like it has really changed my life and I think Gumby's too. So one of the first nights we parked at this trailhead. Oh, before we get to that, let me, uh, Waynesboro has been a really (laughs) awesome town we've like spent almost a week at. And uh, one of the interesting things I thought about it was it's named after Mad Anthony Wayne, who we talked about in our presidential podcast. He was like... The murderous bastard of... Yeah, one of Washington's henchmen. (laughs) And uh, it's interesting seeing the picture of him, like, in town and the brief history. You know, they they don't talk about anything of uh, the history we've uncovered about him. (laughs) And it's also interesting, like, you won't see a trace of Mad Anthony. He's just known in the town as Anthony Wayne. More general, and he's very noble-looking in his revolutionary general's outfit. But, yeah, outside of Waynesboro, there's this thing, it's... Um, referred to as the, I think, the Crozet or Crozet um, Tunnel or the Blue Ridge Tunnel because it's around the Blue Ridge Mountains and Blue Ridge Parkway. And I think the first night that we were in Waynesboro, we went up to this trailhead and uh, it was really quite peaceful. We did did get a wake-up call from a cop, but he was just like, oh, okay, you know, just whatever. Just wanted to make sure we were okay. And... uh, and then, what was it, the last day that we were in Waynesboro, we decided to go back up there and do this short trail through an almost mile-long tunnel that used to be uh, for the railroad there. I, forgot, I, I didn't write down the length, but it's like 4,000-plus uh, feet long of a tunnel, 700 feet below the surface of the earth. And... Um, well, I just thought it was going to be a stroll in the dark and no big deal. And uh, 
We may have been smoking weed that morning. <laughs> yeah, I was just thinking it was going to be sort of a fun, like, sensory experience, like something unusual. So we got up early, and uh, we'd heard, like, get there early so you can have the tunnel to yourself, and that's, like, kind of the best way to experience it. So we got there early, you know, just started up the van, went down the road, like, barely, you know, we were right there, smoked a little bit of weed, and, uh, you know, I'm thinking, like, yeah, this will be fun, which I should have known better because the last couple of years I've been developing like this uh, increasing sensitivity to going through like tunnels that go through the mountains. It's not just like going through a covered bridge or whatever. It's not about darkness because um, that doesn't bother me much. But I can feel the mass of the mountain even driving through it. I get a little like a little touch of dizziness or just like, ooh, that was intense. So I should have had some inkling of what I was in for walking through a mile of this. And I've, like in the past, I've explored um, lava tubes and small caves by myself. And I've also gone into wild caves with friends and acquaintances, um, as well as like tour groups at a place, um, what is it called? Mammoth Cave in Kentucky. So I haven't really shied away from... uh, going into caves, spelunking, you know, being in the dark, being in the earth. But uh, for some reason, and I don't want to ruin it for people if they want to try it, but for some reason, um, that morning, that was a religious experience for me. Yeah, I knew as soon as we had gone about like 20 feet in, I stopped and I turned to Teresa and I was like, are you sure? Like, we should, are you sure you want to do this? And we almost stopped and just turned around right there. And then I was like, oh, I'm going to feel like such an ass if I came down here and didn't even go through the tunnel. And the thing is, you can see the light at the other end. You can see the light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, it's like a mile away, but you can see it. So, you know, when somebody's describing it to you, it's like, you know, a huge tunnel big enough to fit a train through. I can see the light at the other end. What's the problem? And there's reviews from families that take their children through there, like three-year-old kids that go through this. So I'm like, I don't know what's wrong with me. Let, yeah, let's go. Let's just. And we it. saw other people go through the tunnel. Like there was a couple of little old ladies walking with their flashlight, and they were just chatting as if it was any morning walk, like it was nothing. But for Teresa and I. And I'm, I don't think it was just the weed. Matter of fact, if I knew what I was getting into, I don't think I would have smoked weed. Um, I think I would have just wanted to have that experience be between me and the mountain. I, it was a very sacred thing. It was like I was dealing with a, uh, who just an ancient energy and going right into the heart of it. Um, you know, you're walking towards that light and you're walking and walking and walking and walking and walking and it's barely getting any bigger. And I made the mistake when I was getting in there and I was, I was like choking down my anxiety, my panic. Cause there's this voice in my head. That's just like, man, you can't get out of this. Like if you, if you take off running, first of all, it's pitch black. So even with the flashlight, that would be dangerous as hell. Second of all, you're going to have to run a long fucking ways. There's no way of getting out of this. You are in the darkness and the belly of this mountain for quite a while, no matter how bad you want to get out of it. And that kind of stuff, just like the walls start closing in. I was like on the verge of panic. And I made the mistake when we were going into it the first time of looking back, thinking, you know, I can see how far I've come and maybe that'll give me hope. But when I look back after being in there for a long time of walking, the fucking mouth of the tunnel we were leaving still looked bigger than what we were heading towards (laughs) and man that was a mind fuck so whoo yeah um and by the way so 
This is a tunnel through a mountain. And in case you're an idiot like me, you can't just like opt out when you've entered into the tunnel. I mean, opting out will require you to go back through what you've already gone through. So it's not like, oh, you could do like, you know, a quarter of a mile of it or, I mean, you're pretty much committed to going through it. There's no like exit door where it takes you out to the sunshine. You have to just go towards the other side or go back how you came. And I mean, if you don't have another car parked at the other end, you're having to go back through there anyway, which by the way, we only have one vehicle. Yeah, Teresa and I are about to talk more about mental health and mental illness, but one of the things that uh, we struggle with a lot is anxiety, depression, things like that. I'd say Teresa maybe leans a little more into the depression. I lean a little more into the anxiety. Um, But one of the, the unique flavors of my anxiety is anything that makes me feel trapped, like there's no way out, really sets it off. Even making plans with somebody, if I'm uh, supposed to be at a certain place, you know, at three o'clock, I'll start getting anxiety around that. I'll feel trapped by time. I feel trapped by schedule. Anything that makes me feel trapped, I start really uh, having feelings of anxiety around. So being in this mountain like that in the dark with the walls pressing in, knowing, like I just said, I couldn't get out. Oh man, that was right in the heart of what triggers me. And when we were walking in, we saw this fence that had a sign on it that said like, extremely dangerous, do not enter this area. And it had a picture of a person like walking on train tracks with a big no symbol over it. And we were like, that's kind of strange. Like who would want to go up this hill that looked like it was full of poison ivy and all sorts of other brambly nasty things, probably Mm -hmm. ticks and chiggers. And then we got to the other side and we're like, Oh, yeah. Yeah, on the other side, you can look down and there's railroad tracks. And, you know, we we just barely made it in. Like, it was everything I could do to keep myself from doing something really stupid like taking off running. So Teresa and I were holding hands, and she kept trying to slow me down because what made her feel safer was to walk more slower and carefully. And I was just feeling like, I need to get out of this thing. I need to get out of this thing. I need to get out of this thing. So I kept walking faster and faster. And so we finally get out and we're just like, now, you know, we don't want to talk about what we're feeling in there because we don't want to exaggerate it or inflate it. We're just dealing with it. So we get out and we're just like, holy shit, that was fucking intense. Oh my God. And then it dawns on us. Oh my God, we're going to have to go back through that thing. And so (laughs) for, for several minutes, I don't think I can do it. I'm like, I am incapable of going back through this thing. And there's railroad tracks right there. And suddenly that sign we saw at the beginning made perfect sense. Because I could imagine how many people go through that thing and like, I ain't going back in there. And they get on the railroad tracks and try to walk the railroad tracks back. Yeah, I was even thinking that, you know, maybe one of us could hitchhike and the other one stay with Sherlock. Or, you know, there's bound to be somebody else in the parking lot, like Gumby mentioned, there were two women that were kind of like power walking in there. And we only saw them probably about halfway through our way back. So we had gotten there early enough that we did have the tunnel to ourselves the whole way through the first time. And pretty much like, I'd say at least half the time back. And, um, that really made an impact on me. In fact, I just want to share, I, I was absolutely terrified that this man-made structure, which, by the way, was made by 800 Irish immigrants and uh, a handful, I think they said about 40, enslaved craftsmen, craftspeople and laborers, um, that would be slaves, and they only used hand drills and black gunpowder. 
to make this almost mile-long tunnel through the mountain. And I just thought, Jesus Christ, my dad just died. If I die in a mountain, my mom is going to be like... She's going to hate rocks forever. She's going to be beside herself. And if and then I started thinking like, well, you know, maybe I'll be at peace. You know, like if I'm gone, you know, whatever's on the other side, maybe I'll get to be with my dad and my grandpa and my grandma and like all these other people. And then I'm like, fuck, what if I don't die? What if I'm like in a cave-in and I'm like struggling to breathe for hours and days and I have no water. Oh my God. And I just started freaking myself out. And occasionally I'd just turn on a flashlight just to make sure like I was still there because it was such sensory deprivation. (laughs) And it was such a fertile experience for both of us. Like we saw other people go into that and, uh, afterwards reading. Yeah. Afterwards and reading the reviews and stuff. It seems like a lot of people don't, would not describe this experience at all in the terms we're describing it. And, uh, you know, for one thing, I'm glad we got there early and got to have our fresh experience of it. You know, it broke our routine. Like usually we take our time in the morning, walk Sherlock, uh, you know, and Sherlock was fine in there. He did the whole thing with us. And, you know, out of the three of us, he was probably the least phased by it. He just trotted along. We could hear him, uh, panting in the darkness. Mouth breather. Yeah. (laughs) And, uh, just getting there and having the experience fresh and uh, breaking our routine, you know, I did, hadn't had my morning cup of coffee. So everything about it, I felt just kind of lended itself to this like new, fresh, breaking my routine, this, this, uh, specialness. And it was such a fertile thing. Like I kept thinking when I was in the mountain, like, wow, mountains are so powerful for making you face things and helping you shed things. Like, it's kind of like, you gotta, you gotta look this thing in the eye or it's going to kill you. And, um, you know, I'm glad we're open to stuff like that. I, I believe we might be a uh, mountain empathic. Oh, yeah. Uh, empaths of the of the old world. <laughs> but whatever it is, we're, I, I feel like we got something out of that that not everybody gets. And it was interesting comparing our fears, you know, talking about mental health. Um, like the, the external f- and the internal. The flavor of our fears. Teresa was more afraid of the external. Um, she was afraid of the mountain that it was going to fail, it was going to crush her, it was going to, you know, the man-made structure was not what it should be to keep her feeling safe. There's like water leaking into the tunnel and stuff. I was afraid of the internal. I was afraid my own mind was just going to create demons. I wasn't afraid of what was in the darkness or that the cave was after all this time going to, you know, swallow us up. I was afraid my mind was not going to be able to handle it and just fucking like, I was going to panic. I was not going to be able to control myself. And uh, it was such a test of faith for me because I talk about, you know, having faith, like the difference between the waves and the ocean, like the waves all, you know, make you feel secure. But what we really are is the ocean. There's nothing to be afraid of. And to try to have to try to use that, you know, in there, like remind myself, whatever happens, I am the mountain. I am the tunnel. And, um, you know, it was like a, a... rebirth experience because I kept thinking just keep moving go towards the light go towards the light just like people talk about when you die you know move towards the light that that was my mantra is like just keep moving as long as you're going towards the light you're all right you're all right you're all right go towards the light go towards the light and it oh man there was just so many depths of lessons including what I just said earlier about looking back don't look back (laughs) you know like that that was a powerful lesson just the layers and we were unhinged for like half the day after that we went to a park and we knew we were leaving Waynesboro that day so we weren't going to be around wi-fi or anything for a while so we went to a park that we could pick up wi-fi and tried to kind of tie up loose ends get our research ready for this podcast for instance um 
But man, Teresa and I both were just like, I don't feel like myself. Something happened in there. It was it was intense. I like Gumby said about heading towards the light. You know, that seems so hokey and and overused, but um my experience of it too was that darkness because we didn't we didn't walk with the flashlight on for the most part. We turned it on when we saw those ladies coming because we weren't sure like who they were, if they had a dog. And, and every I, now and then we'd flash it on just for own comfort. Yeah. We'd see like a weird thing in the floor and you know, I wasn't thinking it was a monster or anything, but you know, it might be a deep puddle we could trip over and you know, the light plays tricks on you. So every time I'd turn the flashlight on, we hadn't talked about this, Teresa, but I don't know if you noticed how every time it wasn't a deep thing. It just looked deep in the darkness. Right. It was some shallow little, like you could barely even tell it was deeper when the flashlight was on. Exactly. And for me, when the flashlight was on, the light was on, I could distract my mind with the floor, with the walls of this cavernous tunnel. And when the light was off, oh my God. It was like every demon, every evil thing was around me. But if I just had my faith and I went towards the light, I would be okay. And I will regale you with a song, very short little uh, bit of a song that I remember from going to church. And I don't go to church, but like this, this (laughs) just kind of popped into my head when we were done. So the song goes... The Lord is my light and my salvation. Of whom shall I be afraid? And I'm sure that comes from the Bible from somewhere. I have no idea. I'm Catholic. Um, But the message of that was like all of those demons and, and evil things in the darkness, as long as I had my faith, whatever that means, that like I'm heading towards the light, it'll be okay. I was okay, but then when I started thinking about, like, the possible failures in the man-made structure and just, like, feeling like I wasn't very lucky or, you know, just all these things coming up. I was like, oh, shit, oh, shit, losing my grip and going off the rails. Mm. And uh, so, yeah, that really lent itself to, um, God, like, even walking back through it, the water that was dripping, I almost felt that was like a kind of like a baptism, like a renewal of sorts. Like, wow, you did this, like... Go again. Go forth. Here you go. Yeah. One of one more thing I want to share about my experience in there is, uh, you know, for one thing, my, my, my faith was tested and I found it weak at that moment. You know, it was really, it was not present foremost in my mind. I had to really reach for it and it was slippery. I couldn't get a hold of it. And uh, that was a powerful insight. And another thing um, was how much I was trying to avoid my experience. Like Teresa's talking about the distraction of looking at the rocks and the walls. Be careful not to touch these books or the iPad's going to fall. The rocks and the walls and the water dripping. Um, And me with my own thoughts and my mantras. And I realized when I came out, you know, we were talking about hobo zen and stuff recently, how much that powerful experience, like I didn't want the experience. I didn't want it. It was scaring the shit out of me. (laughs) And that was a powerful experience thing, you know, like behind that fear, behind that thing that challenges you are the biggest growth opportunities, the biggest doorways into insights and visions. And uh, I was scared of it. I was trying to do anything I could just to survive it, to distract myself instead of sitting with what was happening. And uh, yeah, just that blew me away. (laughs) We both agreed there should be a warning label, like a warning sign um, 
you know, at the entrances of this tunnel, like, Christ. Yeah, I kept passing people on the way up, and I'd be like, have you been here before? And they'd say <laughs> no, and I'd be like, it's intense. <laughs> and, yeah, like, I I thought, like, man, I should write a review, you know, for this thing and, like, really tell them what it's all about. But then I thought, you know, we were just talking about that in the Hobo Zen episode, how I felt like everybody should have their own experiences. So, yeah, I don't think I'm going to write that review. I mean, whatever, but. Yeah. Uh, one other thing about that is the the levels of fear, not just the internal and external, but just when you think that you've got it conquered and then something else, like, you know, rears its ugly head. It was just like, oh, man, I thought I had, like, okay, I'm going to be at peace. If, you know, if I die, I will be at peace. And then it's like, yeah, but what if you don't die? It's like, oh, no, <laughs> I thought I was, I thought I was good. So there's our recent story. This happened yesterday of us dealing with all the shit in our minds. Um, so, Teresa, why are we doing an episode on mental health? Well, I'm not uh, I'm not sure. Because <laughs> <laughs> we're crazy. I've been having a lot of issues lately, and uh, it just seems like a lot of people are kind of going off the rails, so to speak. And so that was a really good title, Gumby. Um Right before this, I was reading a booklet that you can find online. Um, It's like a a Buddhist thing, and I thought I would just tie in the Buddhism thing because we were talking about Hobo Zen. Um, But it was by Lama Yeshe, Y-E-S-H-E, and I think it's called something like Your Mind is an Ocean. And it's, uh, at least the part I was reading, it was kind of like a question and answer book. And one of the questions um, Lama Yeshe was was saying... I don't think people understand what I mean when I say your mind is an ocean. And what I've discovered in a lot of these talks that, um, whether it's Buddhism or Hinduism or whatever, a lot of times these phrases will have many levels of meaning, just like the many levels of fear we were facing in the tunnel. So uh, referring to or regarding sanity, um, Lama Yeshe was saying that People's problems are like the ocean. We only see the superficial waves. We don't see what lies beneath. And he went on to say... Sounds like the waves, ocean thing we talked about from Zen, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, he was also saying that everybody has the same problem. The problem is the nature of the mind. We're so preoccupied with problems outside of ourselves when what we really need to be doing is examining our own minds. And the problem is that we are ignorant. We're not understanding the nature of our dissatisfied minds. And um, there, there's a lot more to that dissatisfied minds, like aversion or um, anger, uh, which maybe, you know, if, if you're interested, you can look it up for yourself in that book, you can get it for free online. But I just thought that was interesting because um, what we're also going to talk about are like specific mental illnesses or what some people consider mental illnesses um, and how it applies to and and what it has to do with our society and our culture. Yeah, and it seems so relevant right now, you know, where there are a lot of news stories, even as uh, polluted and uh, agenda-driven as the media is, um, even the media is reporting a lot of the uh, growing mental health crisis. And, um, you know, I don't need to uh, 
take that on faith. I'm seeing it in my own world, my own sphere. Uh, we have a friend that just, uh, you know, was, was feeling suicidal and she found herself in the, the psych ward. I got my mom who had a stroke and, uh, you know, last time I talked to her, she was kind of living in a different reality. Um, couldn't tell dreams from what we would call reality. Not maybe not that any of us can, but some of us go a little further out on the periphery where they're not fitting in with our dreams anymore. And we're like, wow, that person's delusional. We got a fancy word for that. And don't we have a fucking fancy word for everything now? Oh yeah. Makes us feel very smart and like we're in control of it and we've dissected it all to pieces. And now we know exactly what it is. My God, start looking into all the things that you can want to fuck. There are so many words for depending on what you want to fuck, when you want to fuck it, how you want to fuck it, who you want to fuck, who you feel like you are when you fuck it. It's ridiculous. Um, It's like the Eskimos word for snow. It goes to tell you, like, how many words they have for snow. What is our culture focused on? Mm. (laughs) Getting fucked. Mm -hmm. Um, And, yeah, it's just, and you know, the widespread, like, insanity of our culture. You know, I feel like more and more people are tuning into that, like, Wow, the way we do things, I don't know what the answer is. I don't know what the solution is. I don't even know what sanity looks like anymore. But this ain't it. It doesn't make sense. This is crazy. So, um, Teresa picked this episode right now. Uh, we kind of have that we brainstorm ideas. And what I was thinking of when I first wrote this down is sanity is ways to maintain sanity when you're doing the hobo life. <laughs> but that led to a lot of questions as in, do we know ways to maintain sanity? Are we maintaining sanity? What the hell is sanity? What is insanity? Yeah. So uh, Teresa, you know, chose that topic and uh, kind of opened it up to a lot of other avenues, which I think are a lot more interesting than what I had in mind when I wrote that down. Well, yeah, and definitely I don't feel very sane um, this past, I don't know, like year and a half or so, or really ever. Um, what is sanity? What is insanity? And I started looking uh, for things like sanity evaluation questions because there's a legal uh, basis for that. You know, people that are considered insane, like they may have a lesser um, punishment. They, they might be able to even get out of a crime. I think the guy that shot Reagan was considered insane and all he had, I mean, all he had to do, but he was like under house arrest at his mom's house. Or something. He actually, after he shot Reagan, got put in a, I believe it was John Umstead, which was in Butner. So he actually was in oh. our neck of the woods. Oh, okay. Federal. Okay. Yeah. And he, it wasn't a place for insane people. Yeah. But I couldn't find the questions. And I think Um, mainly the questions are like, have they ever done something like this before? Do they have, um, (laughs) have you ever shot another president? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Was that you? (laughs) Were you alive when Jay? You said you wouldn't do it again. God damn it. Yeah, we were. I didn't know we'd have another person that was going to be an asshole. What could I do? (laughs) They should have listened to our hours long podcast. Um, but yeah, so I didn't really write down a definition for sanity or insanity, um, just because I, I feel like it's kind of, uh, like in the eye of the beholder, so to speak. And one of our listeners wrote in, um, we already read her listener write in, but Monique, um, in one of her comments, Gumby remembered. And where's she from? Oh, Hokitika, New Zealand. Oh yeah. Can you do it in an Australian accent? No. Oh, Basically, <laughs> I can't do it. Yeah, yeah, that was great. Basically, most research in psychology cannot be replicated. This is a huge deal. <laughs> mm. Because 
replication is a basic part of the scientific method. And uh, you nailed it. I totally nailed it. It's yeah. <laughs> Might be the only one I can ever do. Um, sorry, Monique. But yeah, there was an experiment that I saw. It interested me for this podcast called the Rosenhan experiment, and it was conducted in 1973. So the first, there were two parts of this experiment. So talking about like how do you classify sanity or insanity? How do you uh, like? How do you look at someone? How do you assess someone and say, okay, they're insane? So this guy, he and seven other people, three women and four other men, they feigned auditory hallucinations and they tried to get admitted um, into psych hospitals. And they were. All of them were admitted into 12 different psychological hospitals um, in five states in the United States. Now, they were, at least they didn't think they were, insane. But after the evaluation questions that they were under, they were considered, all of them were classified, except for one, as uh, schizophrenic, in remission. And the other one was diagnosed with depressive psychosis. So the purpose of the experiment Manic depressive psychosis. was for them to uh, fake a mental illness and to see if psychologists could weed it out and distinguish sane people faking it from people with real mental illness? Yeah, so they try to prove that you cannot distinguish the sane from the insane. Now, once they were admitted to the hospital, they said, okay, I no longer hear those auditory hallucinations. I feel fine. However, all of them stayed in the hospital for an average, their average stay was 19 days each. Wait a minute, let me get this straight. So their, the experiment was for them to fake the hallucinations, but then as soon as they are in the hospital to quit faking. Right, because they wanted to get out. And they actually had a lawyer on standby um, just in case they couldn't get out uh, voluntarily discharged. They're like, okay, I feel better. You know, thank you very much. And, you know, shake the hands of the doctors and nurses and leave. That's not what happened. They had to agree. They had to admit to having a mental illness and agree to take antipsychotic medications, which they took and threw down the toilet, even though none of the hospital staff recorded that that happened. Um, but to have to admit to having a mental illness, I mean, especially in our society, but in, I mean, probably others too, but that's a pretty big deal. I mean, that could really follow you and screw you up. But even more so, um, this experiment it showed, supposedly, that doctors, psychiatrists, people who are trained in this, they could not distinguish the sane from the insane. Now, that was the first part of the experiment. Here's the second part. Well, can I just say something mm -hmm. about that first part? Sure. I'm not surprised that they had a problem getting out of the jaws of the institution once they were in there. <laughs> My mom tells this story, I remember when this happened, where she's going to see a therapist as part of her, uh, she, she's on um, disability for... Uh, social anxiety, mental issues, 
Um, so she's talking to her therapist, and she says something like, sometimes I have suicidal thoughts. Not like mm. it's imminent, not like she's going to kill herself, certainly not like she's a danger to anybody else. This psychiatrist who's trying to supposedly build trust with her so my mom will open up and talk to her honestly and candidly has her institutionalized. So we're waiting for her to come home. She doesn't come home. We eventually get a phone call that she has been locked in a cell with pink padding. She said it was like a fucking like weird uh, torture room of a pimp or something. It was like (laughs) it was surreal. All this, not because of attempted suicide or anything like that, because she said that sometimes she has suicidal thoughts. Now, how the fuck do you think she felt about talking to her therapist after that? Say the wrong thing, and it's not just like, oh, can we help you? It's like, lock her up. It is, that's insane. And, and, you know, I don't want to derail. I know you're going to get into that second part of the experiment, so I don't want to derail it too far. But, you know, I'm thinking going back to the definition of sanity I feel like the definition of sanity, basically, the way I understand it, not looking up on Webster's or Wikipedia or any of that shit, is if you share the paradigm, the view, the story of the society in power, if you see things different from that, Kurt Vonnegut's got this great quote, a sane person to an insane society must appear insane. Mm -hmm. I love that. And I think that's sort of the definition of sanity. But the problem is, as more and more of us are waking up to, is the society is insane. So how can they judge mental illness? Exactly. So the other half of that Rosenhan experiment, it was also called the thud experiment because evidently they used the words like um, for their auditory hallucinations. Did you say thud experiment? Yeah, like a thud noise. Like they would describe these auditory hallucinations as like a thud noise. So they called it the thud experiment also. Um, Wait a minute, wait a minute. So (laughs) these people are saying not that they have like people saying go burn down a house or anything. They're saying they hear thuds. They said that there there were human voices that were saying things and, and I guess making noises. But then it stopped. Did they specify what kind of things the voices were supposed to be saying? Like, as far as I can remember, it was sounds, not like bang, but something like that. Or like empty. Like they would they would whisper a word that was like hollow. You know, my dad had that where he was hearing voices. Did I tell you that? I think so, yeah. Yeah, it was like my dad lost his mind, completely went off the rails. And uh, the first sign of that, years before he started having this hallucination, he was in New Hampshire and he was walking on a snowy path and he sees, and who knows? I mean, reality merging with reality. We don't know if this actually happened. But he says he saw a little girl break through the ice, people trying to get to her. They couldn't reach her, and she drowned. And as she's drowning, she's screaming, Mommy, help me! Mommy, help me! And she drowns. Years later, you know, I'm a little kid. I think I'm still in elementary school, maybe middle school by then, somewhere around there. My dad starts hearing, and keep in mind, he's an alcoholic. He's drunk most of the time, but he starts hearing, Mommy, help me! Mommy, help me! You know, that was the first sign of, like, the cheese might have slid off his cracker. Mm. And everything went downhill from there. My goodness. Well, so these folks, um, the first part of the experiment, I guess one of the hospitals got wind of it, or maybe they agreed to this beforehand, but one of the hospitals challenged Rosenhan, the, the guy in charge of this experiment, to try and send people to our hospital, and we'll determine whether or not they're sane or insane. Rosenhan agreed. During the second part of this experiment, 
41 out of 193 new patients to this hospital that accepted the challenge were identified as possible pseudo patients. So the hospital thought that 41 out of 193 new patients were possibly faking it. 19 of those 41 received like suspicion from at least one psychiatrist or staff member. Now here's the kicker. Rosenhan didn't send anybody. <laughs> Nobody. He, he sent no one. So they're reacting. <laughs> they're reacting to just thinking that there might be people who are faking it. Yeah. <laughs> and oh, by, that's fucking brilliant. Yeah. By the way, this is crazy. So going back to the first part of the experiment. Oh, by the way, you're not supposed to use, use the word crazy anymore. It's demeaning and demoralizing. What do we call these people then? Um, Normal? Neurodivergent. <laughs> ah. <laughs> Girly booty. <laughs> uh, so, um, I didn't say that. So, uh, the other psych patients in the hospital, when the, when the first part of the experiment was going on, when the eight people entered in faking it, the pseudo patients, the other psych patients identified them as being fakes and even told the nurses and staff members, I think we've got a journalist here. Like, I think there's somebody here that's like taking notes. So the other patients knew, but the doctors didn't. Yeah. They could sniff out the imposters. And then of course the nurses and and staff thought that, oh, well, these are crazy people. So of course they're going to like be hallucinating and paranoid about people in here. Well, if Napoleon and Jesus says these people are fakes, I think we should listen to them. (laughs) And the other thing was that the people that were feigning the auditory hallucinations in the first part of the experiment, they were taking notes. And the doctors reported that the note taking was actually a sign of schizophrenia or some other sort of like obsessive compulsive note taking habit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I loved that. But what I, I wanted to um, close that with was because, you know, wow. there's all these questions of perception. So Monique was saying that, you know, often the psychiatric experiments cannot be duplicated. There's some question as to whether or not there were actually eight people in that first part of the experiment or if Rosenhan made up some of them. Huh. Who's questioning? Um, I guess other uh, psychology, you know, uh, doctoral students or something like that. Hmm. They, I guess they are pouring through his um, notes and through his research and wondering, like, did this guy just make this up to, like, create and generate certain results for a certain purpose? So I guess you're tying this into Monique's comment because it seems like this should be a reproducible experiment. Yeah. Has anybody tried to reproduce it? I don't know. Huh. I didn't come across anything like that. So it might be one of those experiments like the, I always forget the names, like Mill Milgram experiment. Is that the one where people, the pain threshold? One of them was the pain and one of them was the prison experiment where they had the, the students pretend like half well, which the Which one students, are you referring to? I was trying to refer to like the um, prisoner experiment. Well, if we can't remember the name, you want to explain really quick what that experiment is for our listeners who might not know? Okay, sure. It was like where half the um, college students were told that they were the prison guards and the other half were prisoners and they kind of like lost themselves in role playing and like there was psychological damage caused to both parties. And so that type of psychological experimentation in like the 50s, 60s, and 70s, the 1950s, 60s, and 70s was um, eventually kind of deemed unethical so that 
people in the future wouldn't have uh, like all these problems. Yeah, I want I want to say that was a Stafford or Stanford. Stanford I, I can't experience. I can't remember the names well either, but something like that. And I I did run into some people that questioned that. Um, there seemed to be some uh, possibility that maybe the doctor rigged things a little bit to mm. encourage. Uh, like the prison guards to be more abusive because he wanted a dramatic outcome. But, yeah, it's an interesting thing. Like, it, it gets cited all the time. When I read books, you know, I, I hear that all the time, the prison experiment, the prison experiment. But apparently that's not such a clean-cut thing as it may seem. You should, uh, before you go citing that experiment, look into it yourself. There's a lot of, and look into the people that are questioning it. It's a complicated thing. So, yeah, something else I wanted to bring up with uh, with regard to, like, are we all insane in this culture? There was a book that Eric Fromm, who I guess is a big guy in psychology. Did I, he write a fiction book? That sounds so, like, uh, Wuthering Heights or something. I don't think so. Huh. I only know that he wrote this book called The Sane Society um, in 1955. And you can download it for free. I did. I didn't read all of it um, because it was really over my head and fairly boring and it just whatever. But I got some quotes from it that I thought were interesting. So maybe buried amongst all of the jargon and psychobabble is... Uh, diamonds some, in the rough. Yeah, are some diamonds in the rough. So this guy, Eric Fromm, he wrote... There were two things I wanted to say. One of them was, it is naively assumed that the fact that the majority of people share that share certain ideas or feelings proves the validity of these ideas and feelings. The fact that millions of people share the same vices does not make these vices virtues, nor are the facts that they, um, or the errors that they share make them facts. So in other words, just because millions of people think that something is a fact or an error, it doesn't make it so. Nor yeah. does it... Uh, I, I just, I didn't mean to interrupt. I thought you were uh, done for a moment. But mm -hmm. I, uh, that makes me think of like how groups of people validate each other. Like, right. you know, as long as you're hanging out with Nazis, um, carrying around a little like, uh, you know, change purse made from a Jewish person's scrotum just mm -hmm. seems like, yeah, of course, that, that's what we do. You know, and if you're living among Comanches, you know, torturing your enemies slowly to death and like having them crawl across the ground with their, their entrails dragging behind them. It's like, well, yeah, what else would you do with an enemy? Mm -hmm. You know, it, it, it's so it's so to me obvious that there's no such thing as intrinsic sanity or insanity. There's no such thing. It's just whatever the culture deems we believe this is OK, but this is not. If you acted like a Comanche from 300 years ago in our culture, you would definitely be fucking thought of as insane. If you acted like a Nazi from World War II in our culture, you would definitely be elected president. But you would be thought of as insane by the other party. Right, and the last part of that quote... <laughs> I lost you. Yeah, there. the last part of that quote was just that if millions of people are sharing the same form of mental pathology, it does not make these people sane. So basically getting back to the Kurt Vonnegut quote. And it also reminded me of the um, the story, The Emperor's New Clothes, where everybody was who was smart, who was intelligent, could see the clothing. And it took a child uh, who was completely, you know, innocent and naive of all these worries of not being considered intelligent to say, he's not wearing any clothes. And I feel like that applies a lot um, in our society, especially when it comes to peer pressure. Um, 
the other quote that I wanted to share from Eric Fromm's The Same Society, uh, The Sane Society, is an unhealthy society is one which creates mutual hostility and distrust, which transforms man into an instrument of use and exploitation for others, which deprives him of a sense of self, except in as much as he submits to others or becomes an automaton. And I just thought that was interesting that in 1955, he was bringing these, um, these concerns up about society because, God, I was doing a lot of uh, reading about how children and young adults are more and more, like it's a significant increase of suicides and other um, mental illnesses, suicidal ideations and depression. Do you have that sui- those suicide numbers that you shared with uh, in our episode Nature Therapy? Yeah, and I also have other stuff. So um, when I was talking about uh, kids and suicide in the Nature Therapy um, podcast that we did, I mentioned that suicide is the second leading cause of death in children and teens. Now, there was a study that was done... Um, let me see if I can find, it's not important. So there was an article that talked about this hospital in Oakland, California. And from May to December of last year, 2020, they provided emergency mental health care to 651 children, which is an increase of 76% from the previous year. Yeah, just by following Facebook and like seeing what my friends are posting, a lot of parents had their kids go in for evaluation and see therapists last year, which shouldn't be surprising considering. There was another article that I read. Um, this was on ScienceDaily.com from 2019. It was like right as the pandemic was hitting the United States, this article come out. It was like March 15th, 2019. Is that right? Or is it what? 2020? No, this was a year before the pandemic that this article came out. It was in 2019. And it was saying, um, the name of the article is Mental Health Issues Increased Significantly in Young Adults Over the Last Decade. Um, The percent of young Americans experiencing certain types of mental health disorders has risen significantly over the past decade, with no corresponding increase in older adults. So it's just the kids? Yeah, more adolescents, this is from the article, more adolescents and young adults in the late 2010s versus the mid-2000s experienced serious psychological distress, major depression, or suicidal thoughts, and more attempted suicide. All right, well, I'm curious, and I don't know if you're going to go on to, like, what, why people think that is, but if not, I'm curious as to either what other people think is behind that or what you think is behind that. Well, it did say in the article, so I'll say this last um, little quote from the article, and then I'll say what they thought. So it said, these trends are weak or non-existent among adults 26 years and over, suggesting a generational shift in mood disorders instead of an overall increase across all ages. So what this article said was they postulated, is that the word? Mm-hmm. That, Sounds good. Uh, yeah. That... There are two things that they said, and this is for, um, again, children, uh, adolescents, and young adults, because we consider young adults children now. And that's another episode. Um, Increased use of digital media may have changed the modes of social interactions enough 
to affect mood disorders. That's the first thing. The second thing, children are probably not getting enough sleep. Can you imagine? Just put everything down for a second and listen to this. I'm not saying that I know what I'm talking about, but this is actually from... Hey, put that down. We see you. This is from the American Psychological Association as its source. What if the increase in child suicides as well as other mental illnesses is because your child isn't getting enough sleep and they're on social media too much? What the hell? So the article was saying... This is actually a good thing that we found this out. Again, it's science. So, you know, in a couple weeks, there'll be something that says it's not that. Why would kids not be getting enough sleep? Because a lot of kids have their own phone. And I can tell you, even adults do this. They can't help themselves. I mean, when I was around Wi-Fi all the time, I would stay up until 1, 2, or 3 in the morning. Children do the same thing. They go down the rabbit holes of the internet. They're, you know, interacting on Facebook with their friends, but it's causing them to lose sleep. And I'll tell you this too. When my brother was younger, he was playing video games from like (laughs) age three on up. Dirty laundry. And he would not, he would not go to sleep until he completely passed out in the computer chair in front of the computer. And this would happen around maybe five in the morning. You'd hear the computer game going. And if you walked in to tell him to, like, shut it down, his head was, like, hanging down. He was asleep. And he had actually, I think, more than one time. He doesn't have epilepsy. He had, like, a seizure in class. And, like, okay, sorry, this isn't dirty laundry. But he, like, peed himself in class, in a high school class. Because he had some sort of seizure where his brain was overloaded. It was not getting enough sleep. It was not getting enough rest. And... He, like, passed out, blacked out, lost control of his bladder in class, in high school. And again, how fucking twisted is that, that we're talking about mental illness of these kids? As if, as a society, we do not have mental illness. These kids (laughs) have a problem. But we're doing it to these kids. These devices, all this crap that's affecting them, reasons why they're not having more sleep, if that is one of the causes, they all stem from the way we are allowing our children to live, um, raising our children, the way we're influencing our children, and through our children, all of us. I mean, this is the way we all live. You know, like, we've talked a little bit about Wetico, and I'm thinking about how other cultures have seen our culture on first contact. Um, you know, and we've, we've talked about this before, how there's this word, Wetico, depending on what tribe you're in, it's pronounced Wintico, Windigo. Um, but many of the tribes had a word for people that have a mental illness. They saw it as something, um, and I'm trying to understand it through the lens of being a person of this culture, so it's probably not the way that it would be described to people um, in these tribes, but it was many tribes that shared this, this word, this, this thought, this idea that you could have this cannibal sickness, um, Wetico. And when they encountered the people of our culture, they thought we had it, all of us. They'd never seen an entire culture Mm. that lived like this. Because if somebody got selfish, if they started looking after themselves at the expense of the other guy within the tribe, first they'd try to help them. They'd try to bring them back, try to explain to them and show them that this is not the way. It's a mental illness. It's extremely dangerous. If not, 
they had to address it one way or the other. Sometimes they just kick them out of the tribe. But it was pretty rare, you know, because imagine being in a culture where there's no influences for that. Nobody's trying to get you to be selfish. Nobody's trying to get you to look after yourself instead of the other guy. Matter of fact, the highest value in the culture is generosity, looking after the other guy. That's how you show the girls that you're like really an awesome guy. That's how you show your friends that you're like the cool person is how generous you are. Imagine being in a culture like that. And then think about our culture and think about now we have the internet and we have smartphones that for some fucking baffling reason that I never can figure out were given to our kids. (laughs) Like they need a fucking smartphone, I guess, just because everybody else has one. Jesus Christ. And they're getting it piped into them all the time. This propaganda, this marketing. And you know it's happening. You know it's happening. This Wetico, you know, this insanity. So... I just think of that underpinning, you know, of the Wetico, that paradigm of a whole culture that has gone insane. And when you talk about suicide rates going up with kids, I mean, it's almost inevitable. It is inevitable with a culture like that. Yeah, there, that same article that I talked about, the um, the Oakland Children's Hospital providing emergency mental health care. I don't even know what that means. But in that article, they were getting quotes from um, from some children. Of course, they you know changed their names to protect. The I know innocent. what that means. That means a kid that's starting to talk about killing themselves or doing yeah. cutting or something that freaks the parents out. Yeah. Well, this fifth grader, fifth grader, so she's probably nine or ten years old. This is um, a fifth grader who had talked about killing herself. She said of her situation, "It's very, very scary." And I have no idea how to handle it. I'm just super scared all the time. And Gumby, I know you and I, we generally, we don't watch TV. Um, We generally don't get to watch a lot of television because, well, quite frankly, it's a bunch of shit. But when we do, the last time we did, oh my God, it's just pumping you with fear. Well, it's not just that it's a bunch of shit. A weird thing about me and Teresa, it's just the lifestyle we've chosen. We can't watch a lot of TV, but when we can, we do. We get a motel room, we fucking plant our asses in front of that boob tube and fucking like let it suck our souls. So I get the addictive uh, capacity of this. I mean, I can't believe how the commercials are twice as loud as the programs. How, like, there's the one time you don't see a fucking commercial is between two episodes of a program, so you're already starting to watch the other program before you're, you're, you've even processed the other one's done. I mean, I get how it hooks us. It's so fucking ugly. Yeah, but just even, not even just the um, TV, but all the all the stories on the internet. I just saw something the other day that was like, oh, there's some black fungus that like is infecting people in India at an alarming rate. And the black fungus is generally harmless. But if you've had COVID and you've had a treatment for COVID, like um, they give you like steroids or something like that to help with the COVID symptoms, um, this black fungus can enter your nasal passage and basically turn your nose, your nasal passage, your jawbone, um, as well as your eye sockets and potentially your brain into a gangrenous mess. Yeah, I don't know what to think of that. Like, on the one hand, I feel like they're saying people that have had COVID are more susceptible to it. So on the one hand, it feels sort of like propaganda of like, so you better get vaccinated and make sure you don't get COVID in the first place. 
And, uh, yeah, and on the other hand, if that shit hits America, like, you know, you're starting to see for yourself that this shit is here, there's not going to be any vax debate or any mask debate. (laughs) People's noses start fucking falling off. Like, yeah, all right, there's no debate about that. Nobody wants their fucking nose to rot off. I mean, and I'm, I'm over here laughing hysterically because it's really not funny. But imagine, like, I'm just thinking, like, I'm going to be 40 in a month. And this freaks the <laughs> That's hell... That's not funny. I've been 40, like, for a while. It sucks. This freaks the hell out of me, uh, what I see and hear in the news, what's being pumped into my brain, whether I want it to be or not. Um, can you imagine what it's really the, the damage that it's doing to a 10-year-old? Yeah. I've noticed that, like, when we're around Wi-Fi for a long time, and TV seems to be worse, but uh, when we're around that propaganda, when it's getting streamed to us, when I leave, I feel so fucking anxious, depressed. I feel bad. I feel intoxicated in a bad way. And now we're up here on the Blue Ridge Parkway. We're going to have long spells, like, not being around Wi-Fi. And it's a whole different mindset. Out here, like, I mean, my biggest problem right now is that the flies are, the bugs are flying around. Which is kind of, you know, I'm glad they're flying around because that indicates like there's still bugs alive, you know. (laughs) When they're not flying around anymore, I think that's big trouble. But, yeah, I mean, you can feel it in your body if you give yourself opportunities to step away. And then if you really stop before you step back in and ask yourself, why am I stepping back in? Much less, why am I leading my children to step back into this? And... I've got all kinds of sympathy for the parents because I know how much the state is setting up a structure that you feel like you don't have a choice for them to succeed in school, for them to succeed in society, for them to feel like they fit in with their friends. You feel like you have to do this shit. And man, I don't know. I don't know where the line has to be. I feel like we've already crossed it. The line was somewhere behind you. Um, You know, I was saying earlier about that tunnel thing. Don't look behind you. (laughs) You know, maybe maybe just decide the line's right here. Gumby, you told me to write down for um, for the show, you told me to write down the word gaslighting. Do you want to talk about what, um, kind of what you meant by that and sanity or going off the rails? Well, we were kind of brainstorming, like, all the things that have to do with sanity, insanity, mental illness, and gaslighting. If you've never seen the movie Gaslight... It's a really powerful movie, and uh, I really recommend you watch that. It's an old movie. I don't remember what year it's made, but it's like one of those classics. And basically, the guy in the movie is convincing the woman that she is crazy. He's setting her up that, uh, you know, I can't... God, you remember watching that movie, right? You remember any specific examples of what he did to her? Well, the whole thing about the... The whole thing about the light in the room. She's like, darling, I think that the light's going dim and he's like of course not baby or you know like he was just so soothingly telling her like no there's nothing wrong with it yeah and he would look at her like very like oh i'm oh no you know like just like i i hate to see you your mental deterioration and he would steal something from her she'd be like i don't know where it went and he'd be like oh you left it here again darling you know and he was like acting like he was on her side at the it's same so time unwell, he was you know yeah just... It's spine chilling. (laughs) And 
I would say any man watching that, if you're honest with yourself, you're going to see things that felt like, oh, my God, I, I've done some of these things. <laughs> and if you're really fucking honest, anybody watching this, woman or man, you're going to have to admit to yourself, oh, my God, I've done some of these things. It is really a powerful thing they tapped into that's happening. But anyway, it got turned into the kind of this buzzword of the liberal left, you know, gaslighting, quit gaslighting me, men gaslight women, never like... You know, just – and for one thing, the movie, this was a guy that didn't really believe the woman was crazy. He was trying to convince her she was crazy. So there's one difference that of what I think happens a lot in relationships. Who hasn't been in a relationship where you think the other person's fucking crazy? I mean, come on. Be honest. <laughs> think about all your exes, for God's sakes. You're going to tell me that you would be, you weren't in situations where you're like, this person has lost their fucking mind. They're crazy. They're not acting sanely. I don't even know what the fuck they're talking about. Are they talking about anything? We've all been there. And, you know, it's hard to find an appropriate way to address that. So I guess I don't want to go on a whole tangent about gaslighting, but I hate the way that word's getting abused because I think one of the bottom lines for me is instead of spending your energy getting so offended that somebody else thinks you're crazy, what if we spent more time acknowledging that we are fucking crazy? <laughs> if somebody's treating you like you're crazy, fuck them. Who cares what they think? Look at yourself. See if you can see the crazy yourself and address that. Because if you're listening to this, Teresa and I are fucking crazy. You're listening to two crazy people. How could we be anything else? Our parents were, were raised in this culture. Your parents are baby boomers, right? Yeah. My parents are baby boomers. Look at all the shit they went through, the fucking craziness. The CIA, that was the age of MK Ultra, for God's sakes. Of course they're fucking crazy. That's when TVs first started getting piped into the home. They are batshit crazy, and they raised us. <laughs> and then the government made them send us to school where they fucking drilled us with organized insanity of how America is the greatest nation on earth. America, the country that dropped A-bombs on other countries. Uh, industrialism, uh, this, this industrial society that's poisoning the planet. You're going to argue with me about like what we're doing to the planet? Fucking go out to the nearest creek of your neighborhood and drink right out of it. Stick your face in there and drink right out of it then. Slurp it up. Yeah, slurp that shit up. Literal shit. If you're going to say, fuck no, that's crazy, then you know what I'm saying is true. How could we not be crazy? So right now you're listening to two raven fucking lunatics. And if you're listening to this, guess what? <laughs> you're fucking crazy. And I'll tell you the most dangerous people I've ever met in society absolutely are the people that don't know they're crazy. They haven't even begun to wake up. The normal people, by the way, I fucking hate that word. There's no such thing as normal. There's no normal people. There's no sane people. And the people that think they're in that group, those people doing the Americana thing, that while the world is falling apart around them, they're talking about like positive thinking and smiling and uh, just being all cheerful. And they, they think it's like a mental illness when you get depressed and shit like that. Those people are fucking ruthless lunatics. <laughs> they scare the shit out of me. Give me somebody who's openly nuts anytime over the so-called normal healthy person. 
that's the person that has completely given themselves over to the most insane society on the face of the planet. And I guess that's all I want to say about gaslighting. I just I think the whole thing is upside down. Quit worrying about who thinks you're crazy. Deal with your actual craziness. That's a good segue into um, another area I wanted to talk about. And this was a question. I think, Gumby, this was your question. What if mental illness, what we call mental illness, is a healthy response to our society? Yeah, that is exactly what I'm talking about. I mean, if you look around and you're hearing about, like, you know, all the things that are happening. And I'm, like, actually in kind of a period of transition right now where a lot of the things that I would have said as absolute truths um, a year ago... I'm not so sure anymore. I'm starting to realize that underneath that, there's another layer of propaganda, which will drive you crazy. Mm. Climate change, for instance. I've been saying for years, 200 species going extinct every day. And sometimes people ask me good questions that argue with me of like, what who, are those? who counts? <laughs> yeah, what are these species? You know, who's counting this? How do they come by those numbers? And for years, I've been getting kind of offended, like, well, you know, I'm, I'm pretty good at coming up with arguments, and sometimes those, those arguments don't even serve me. It's just a way to sidestep the point somebody made. So I'll be like, well, what if it's 100 species? Is that okay with you? But they're actually bringing up a really fucking good point, and i got to admit it. I think I'm at a point in my life where I'm ready to admit it. I don't know. What if climate change is another layer, layer of propaganda? Obviously, the climate is changing. I'm not saying the climate isn't changing, and obviously, this many humans on the planet are affecting it. I'm not questioning that whatsoever. To me, that would be insane to think this many people could live on the planet in every little nook and cranny and not affect the planet. How could that even be? And affect our mental health. But the way it's being used, the way some of the facts underneath it, I don't know anymore. I'm ready to start admitting the things I don't know. And, you know, like, what was the thing you just brought up following the gaslighting? What if um, the segue? mental illness is a healthy response to our society? Yeah, so whether you believe in climate change or not, whether whatever side you fall on that, the fact that you are in, in living in such a culture of uncertainty, it should make you feel anxious. That is the healthy response. It should make you feel depressed when you're hearing news like this. Whether the climate is collapsing, that's a fucking depressing thing. That's a healthy reaction. If you believe that there is a whole culture in the society that is trying to gain power by convincing your neighbors that the culture is collapsing but you don't believe it, still, that is a very depressing situation. So I believe that's a healthy response. It is a healthy response to feel bad, to sometimes even want to check out to not be here anymore, to have suicidal impulses. These people are not the people with the problem. I mean, of course they got problems. We all have shared problems. So much as the people that are just completely oblivious, who have numbed themselves through drugs, through media, through whatever, wealth, privilege, whatever people numb themselves with. Those are the people with the deep, hardest to remove and hardest to address problems. What's your uh, opinion on that, Teresa? Well, as as always, um, you're much more eloquent with your opinions, and my opinions tend to be regurgitations of things that I've read, and I go, huh, that's interesting. So are mine. I just make them sound like they're mine. Oh, well, I'm going to name two books that were mentioned in this article. I got to go pee. I'll be back. Okay.
Go pee for me, too. Um, one of them is called The Handbook of Evolutionary Psychology by a guy named Wiley. And uh, the other one is called Good Reasons for Bad Feelings, Insights from the Frontier of Evolutionary Psychiatry by Randolph Ness. Now, I think both of these books are kind of hinting at what, uh, what I was taking from the mental illness as a healthy response is that what if these are actually adaptations or possibly an evolutionary advantage in some ways in our culture? Um, so both of these authors kind of uh, have different examples here. So I'll, I'll read through some of these. Uh, the one guy, Ness, he says, it's better to have uh, a response, even if it's a little too much, rather than have a bodily system that doesn't respond at all. Um, he says, for example, anxiety might be good because you might try to avoid taking risks, thereby living longer and uh, presumably you know, being able to produce more of the species it might not be good for the planet um being overpopulated but that's his example i know i feel like we're using the word in different ways to me anxiety is superfluous it's not a healthy uh fear or caution anxiety like is the way i experience it is not i don't i don't know i don't feel the the i don't feel like i should justify it you know like it's helping me it's not well, it might not be, it might not feel like it's helping you, but in general as an evolutionary advantage for the species. So here's another one. I don't feel like propagating my species when I'm feeling anxious. <laughs> no, but let's say, let's just say, for example, there's a scary situation up ahead and I am having a lot of fears and anxieties of going, let's say, over a log, over a canyon or some craziness or like walking a a wire between two um, skyrise uh, buildings in the city. Because some people do that shit. They have like fear. They, they don't fear anything. It's like they're numb to fear. And they do these crazy things. And some people like jump out of airplanes and it's like, woohoo. But presumably those are high risk activities that may cause your life to be shortened. I mean, even my dad, he played it safe his whole life pretty much. But, you know, going for a hike and like, I don't know, he was just maybe tired, maybe just too old. I don't know. But shit happens. Maybe I'm arguing semantics. I get that. But I would call that caution. I, I, I Maybe I, I think of something else with anxiety than what this guy means. OK, we'll move on to a different one. Um, there are people who are narcissistic and or aggressive. And that's all fine and good that they're looking out for number one. But maybe, and this is, um, this is from that other book, the Handbook of Evolutionary Psychology, perhaps a check, like a check and balance to selfish urges are things that might help, uh, that he calls them social lubricants, such as empathy, <laughs> empathy, guilt, and mild anxiety. Having empathy, being able to read facial expressions might be an advantage in confirming our social status and convince others to share food and shelter. But too much emotional acuity when individuals overanalyze every grimace can cause motivational nervousness. Um, 
about one's own social value to morph into a relentless handicapping anxiety. So you're talking about the handicapping anxiety. Yeah. He's talking more along the lines of like a little bit, bit of anxiety might actually be good. Another one is depression. While other animals focus on the present, only humans sit and worry about what will happen three years from now if I do this or that. All animals are Buddhists. And especially Sherlock. This can lead to being counterproductive and having obsessive tendencies. However, certain types of depression may be advantageous. Um, having a little bit of lethargy uh, can help to disengage us from unattainable goals. And evolution might favor an individual who pauses and reassesses their ambitions instead of wasting energy. Okay, that, that takes me back to what we were talking about earlier with like what if uh, what we call mental illness is a healthy response to mm -hmm. the situation we find ourselves in. Mm -hmm. I feel like we could change the approach to this because our approach in our society, what do you think our approach is? I, I'm feeling really depressed. I'm anxious. I can't function anymore. Your society, what's your approach to address me? We need to fix you to become productive and to be happy. And so we're going to give you a drug or we're going to send you to like some sort of psychoanalysis yeah, therapy. To numb me. To numb me, to make that feeling go away. To so, make you better. Like, you're broken. You need to be fixed. Yeah. And when I was having my crippling anxiety, like, there was a time in my life where it just shut me down. I could barely drive. I could feel the people around me. And I'd feel dizzy. I'd feel like I was going to throw up. Um, and I had to address that. I, I realized there was two paths in front of me. One was that that Teresa just described, that I'm broken. I need to be fixed. I need to seek help. The other was what if there's a reason this is happening? What if this is telling me something? What if a new teacher has arrived and this is a tough teacher, a teacher that does not make me feel comfortable, a teacher that I did not want to hang out with, but a teacher nonetheless? And uh, I took that path of the teacher. You know, I started meditating. I, I The thing I like about meditating, it sounds so fucking, you know, frou-frou, but basically I was just sitting. I was feeling what I had to feel and realizing I could feel it without it killing me. I could just sit with it over and over and over. I would practice that over and over and over. And that really helped. And um, yeah, I, I'm glad I took that path. And God damn it, I forgot what I was saying. Mm -hmm. You need to meditate more. Yeah, what were we just talking about? Well, we were talking about like being broken and needing to be fixed, but instead using it as an opportunity to like so yeah, yeah. So like as a culture, as a society, instead of trying to take that approach as fixing the person, what if we taught people this is an opportunity? You actually, it's valid yeah. that you're feeling depressed. It's valid that you're feeling anxious. What do you need to change in your life? Mm. I feel like that doesn't get taught nearly enough. What if these things that come up are because we are sometimes individually, sometimes as a culture, sometimes both because a culture is made of individuals, it's indicating that there are things that need to be addressed, things that are piling up that we're not dealing with. And isn't that the truth? I don't care what your political party is, what your religion is. Wouldn't you agree with that, that there are things piling up that we as a culture, as a people, are not dealing with? So doesn't that indicate like a different path should be taken with people that are having negative reactions, hard reactions to a thing that is not being addressed? There was a, I'm sorry, there's just so many articles that I, I wrote down. This one was called, if mental disorders didn't exist, we'd probably be extinct. And it was two doctors, um, Ralph Lewis and Benoit Moul something, Moulrasant, 
It came out in May of 2018. And I wrote down from their article, they said that there are more cases of mental health issues, probably because we're labeling them more, okay? Like Gumby was saying earlier, there's a name for everything. There's a label for everything. But specifically in this article, they mentioned the words, personal difficulties are being labeled as mental illness. So you've got a teenager who is feeling like they don't fit in. How many teenagers feel like they don't fit? I didn't feel like I fit in. Yeah, I had suicidal ideations. I didn't call it that. I just felt like I wanted to kill myself some days. And then, you know, like I got over it. And I'm not saying that it's a laughable thing that you just, oh, you, you silly child, you don't know. But imagine if we're labeling this child as having a mental illness. Again, like I said, that's a huge thing in our culture. If you're not perfect, there's something wrong with you. You can't shake that label your whole life. What if, like Gumby was saying, you use this opportunity to investigate within your own mind, look at your shit, and and try to solve the problems? I'm thinking about these kids' suicide rates that are going up while the adults' rates seem to be staying kind of around the same. There was, I even, wonder... a, there was even a slight decline in this one study in psychological distress for individuals 65 and older. I wonder if part of that is that when you get to a certain age, you've become indoctrinated. You know, mm. you've resigned yourself. You are now part of the machine and you have been convinced there's nothing else. You are meant to be part of the machine. If you have any ugly feelings, well, get on one of those like white hot so Facebook social, you know, like Facebook pages and like talk about how much you hate the government. But, you know, you've kind of like resigned yourself. You quit. What if the reason why kids are feeling it more is because they haven't been indoctrinated as long? Mm-hmm. What if it's like fresher to them, like this shit doesn't work. They're not sophisticated enough to put it in like necessarily this language, but the feeling. Remember how you felt when you went to school? Like something was wrong? Yeah. Something was bullshit? It just, it something something didn't fit. You didn't have the language or the words to like explain it to somebody about, you know, state indoctrination and all this shit, but you, you could feel it. It was like sharp. It was fresh. I remember my my reaction to that was really sharp and really drastic, but I didn't quite know why for a long time. What if that's what kids are feeling? And that's why the suicide rate is is escalating because like this is really fucked up the world that they're inheriting. This is fucked up the shit that they're being taught that they should and will have to do. And they're reacting to that. And it's a healthy reaction. Mm -hmm. Resignation to it is the unhealthy thing. And that's where you start getting into the older people. They're just like, eh, that's just the way it is. Yeah, cool. You just got to do what you got to do. Yeah. And, you know, that reminds me of, um, I think it, Gumby, I think this was you that said that. Otherwise, it was an auditory hallucination. It was an extremely intelligent quote. It was something like it. That was me. Quote. Yeah. It was saying, like, humans, especially young humans, children are, what? No, we're good, but. Okay. Um, we're absolutely curious as all get out. So how is it possible that the schools, the school system, the public education system, as well as private, have absolutely killed our interests, our curiosities? Like, how did they specifically engineer that? <laughs> we're about to lose power on the iPad. Okay, gum. No, we're good. It. But did you did you hear what I was saying about like? No, how I had is to go grab the charger. Possible, I didn't hear it. How is it possible that? 
we're such curious creatures, especially when we're young. But then when we go to school, it's like they absolutely kill that instinct out of us. It's like, oh, I hate school. I hate learning. Yeah. And I don't think it's human to hate learning. We never did hate learning. We hate indoctrination. Mm. Very good observation. Um, a couple other things I was, I just wrote down about uh, mental illnesses or what we consider, you know, mental health issues. For example, our society favors attention to detail, but with other people, um, attention deficit disorder may appear to be a disorder, even though it can be helpful. And just the idea that diversity helps survivability. If you look at all of these things that we call problems, there actually is a purpose for them. And I love that story that you told. I think you told it in the Nature Therapy um, podcast also about that kid that would like go into the woods and be able to find like different tracks and find like baby rabbits and like look up and see like all different birds and like all different signs in the woods. But he was considered like he had a, a learning disability. He had attention hyperactivity disorder. So in the right environment, though, maybe as a hunter gatherer, he might be able to be the best hunter. But we don't have that in our society. So we look down upon these people and again, label them as if they have a problem when there's nothing wrong with them. That's all I had to say about that. Yeah, if we can keep chopping off the individuals who don't fit in as crazy, then we don't never have to address the real problem, which is the society that creates crazy individuals. You know, we've all heard kind of the, uh, I think the, what am I trying to say? Like the view that indigenous cultures often, if there was someone who was schizophrenic or whatever, they would become shamans. They would become people that were very useful in society. And just kind of a common mental illness of depression and anxiety was almost unheard of. Even in uh, Tibet, which was a largely autonomous culture, you know, not many people came to Tibet at one time. And then when it opened up and the Dalai Lama started traveling around, um, I'll never forget this one story about somebody was asking about, uh, how do I deal with like hating myself? How do I deal with like, just, you know, like self-deprecation? And the translator had to explain this to the Dalai Lama for like 15 minutes. <laughs> I, I don't the Dalai Lama couldn't wrap his mind around what, what I don't, I don't get it. What is he talking about? Mm-hmm. Because in Tibet, this was unheard of. The thing that they had to deal with in Tibet is pride, ego. You know, that's the common Buddhist thing is like, all right, we need to, you know, get you to open up more. The The idea of hating yourself was something unheard of in Tibet. And, you know, I just think about what does that say about our culture that so many of us just feel like, all right, I get it. I'm the bad guy. And I'm a fucking coward because I know I shouldn't be doing this shit. I am a no good piece of shit. Nobody likes me. I'm never going to be cool. I'm never going to get anything I want. It just sucks. And then that doesn't even lead us to an extreme act of like becoming a warrior, devoting our life to something. We just putter out like somebody just jacked off on a fucking school bus. (laughs) Or just, I mean, it's sad. It's really sad, you know, and and you got to laugh sometimes because like, you get tired of crying, but, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I'd also written down this, uh, just briefly, this anti-psychiatry movement in the 1960s. Um, psychiatrists were 
they were actually starting to say like, boy, maybe, um, maybe what we're doing isn't really helping. Like, I think they were even realizing like, this is just going down the wrong path. And, um, in this one article I read on Wikipedia, it said that, um, at times in the anti-psychiatry movement, psychiatrists were arguing that schizophrenia was sometimes seen as a transformative state involving an attempt to cope with a sick society. So even they were starting to see the values of even something as what we would call a serious mental health problem, a disease, an illness, was possibly a healthy response. Yeah, okay, so um, I guess one of the last things I wanted to touch on, because this is running long, is um, what are some examples of things that we consider sane by today's society standards that might have previously been considered insane, like possibly putting you into a psych ward at a, a special hospital with like barbed wire fences. So the one that you mentioned um, that I wrote down was homosexuality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as late as the 1970s, homosexuality was considered um, a mental illness. People would go and get treatment for that. And now in today's culture, what, 70, 80, 90, we'll say 50 years later, um, you know, that's completely like, it would be hard to find people. Well, I shouldn't say that. There's people that think all kinds of stuff. But, you know, it's commonly thought like, of course, it's not a mental illness. And I don't know, it's just such a convoluted issue because then you get the trans movement that's kind of, you know, that is a whole, like, shitload of, like, identity crisis. Uh, you know, Josh Slocum in his uh, podcast... Cluster B. Yeah, his podcast, Disaffected, talks about Cluster B. And, uh, man, I highly encourage you to listen to his podcasts. Um, it's Teresa's, like, favorite podcast now. <laughs> But he talks a lot about the trans movement and the leftist uh, social justice movement and how there's so much really narcissistic, ugly shit that's uh, about power and about control instead of social justice. It's masking itself as social justice, this virtue signaling, you know, and crap we're hearing about. It's really interesting stuff. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know that I've got a lot to add to that right now, but it's, it is interesting how... So recently things, you know, like, oh, hysteria. That was yeah. women that, like, a weren't having life. orgasms. So they go to the doctor, and the doctor would, like, manipulate their clitoris so they could have an orgasm. And apparently this was something, you know, you might think, oh, that sounds like a really hot porno. <laughs> but apparently the doctors really didn't fucking like this job. One of the first battery-powered devices invented was a dildo. Wow. was, a, I think, a vibrating dildo. So the doctors wouldn't have to stimulate these damn women's clitorises because it was such a objectionable chore. <laughs> because And they were considered hysterical. So never use the word hysterical. That's the root of the word. What hysterical used to men mean is a woman who's been driven crazy because she's not having orgasms. <laughs> and I was just thinking of um, all the bitchy wives that were committed by their husbands. Um as well as women who were having a child out of wedlock. Wasn't that Grover Cleveland? I uh, Grover Cleveland actually that was the one that like waited for his young 
woman to grow up. Yeah, but in the beginning, before that, didn't he have somebody committed, like, that he had had slept with? I think that was somebody in the Roosevelt family. Huh. You covered a president. I remember that was part of it. I think it was, like, somebody related to um, Eleanor Roosevelt. I can't remember. But, yeah, the, um, the child out of wedlock. What about being an Indian? Being an American Indian? We didn't necessarily send them to psych wards, but we beat the shit out of them so that they wouldn't remember their culture. Because mm-hmm. that was, you know, that was considered insane. Like, what are you going to, like, be Indian for? That's ridiculous and crazy. Um, also, just real quick, things that could be considered insane. Um, anything that is a disapproved action, thought, or emotion um, Our battery is charging now, so if you want to, uh, don't feel like you have to rush it. Well, I'm going to rush it anyway because I know people are probably like, oh, my God, this crazy woman. Um, people that are unhappy have anxiety, suicidal thoughts, um, people who are shy, people who overeat, people who smoke. Um, God, that late news, latest news story about how the government's going to get rid of um, menthol cigarettes to help black people. That is – I really, really – uh-huh. That's how we're going to help. That is so fucking racist and ridiculous. Like, I don't think black people need to have the government, like, take away cigarettes that, by the way, how racist is that to even say that all black people smoke are menthol cigarettes? I mean, maybe it's somewhat true. But what I'm saying <laughs> <I> is, got- <laughs> what I'm saying is, like, that was a news article in the United States. So. Newports. Mm-hmm. <laughs> What about the conspiracy theorists? Right, people that have disapproved thoughts. I mean, even the shit the CIA admits to, if you've got the fucking balls to bother to look on Wikipedia, I'm not even talking about some fringe (laughs) shit, look on Wikipedia about what the CIA themselves admit that they did. (laughs) And then you're going to call somebody a conspiracy theorist because they think the government, like, might be out to get us? (laughs) <laughs> and they might not send you to a psych hospital. You may end up missing. You may end up dead with like two bullet holes to your head. Who was that reporter? That Gary came... Webb. Gary Webb. And At least they... one of them. Yeah, he's not by himself, but Gary Webb is like, just check out Gary Webb. He's a reporter that started coming out with um, finding evidence that the CIA was drug trafficking, actually creating part of the crack epidemic of the uh, maybe 90s, 80s. 80s. And uh you know, then a few short years later, he's found apparently suicided, like Jeffrey Epstein, mm-hmm. who, by the way, was compiling a list of uh, blackmail in case somebody tried to screw him over of people dirt on a lot of rich and powerful people. So, of course, he was going to get off. But Gary Webb, he was found with, what was it, two bullets? I think so. I can't remember exactly, but that's been done before. That's Yeah, a, it's that's an old, old playbook. Play, yeah. One of the presidents I did when we were doing U.S. Presidents Exposed was uh, Warren G. Harding. Warren G. And, uh, Man, listen to that one, Jess Smith. You know, we did a Shots, Shots the Ohio Gang. Go back and listen to that. It's just a few minutes, uh, maybe 20 minutes. But, yeah, listen to Jess Smith. He, You know, getting suicided by the powers that be is not a new thing. And uh, I'll, I'll just finish up this list with um, one other example of something that was con- or might still be considered insane, but it's starting to be, you know, like that quote that I mangled at the beginning from Eric Fromm. More and more people are finding that, hey, you know, this makes sense because more people think that it makes sense is the um, 
all of the different surgeries and drugs that are being used to change people into the opposite sex or gender. I'm not 100% sure what it's supposed to do, but um, yeah. What was that word? Phalloplasty? Phalloplasty. We have so far co-opted <laughs> a person's sanity that we've convinced them they can actually have been born in the wrong body and you need surgical, um, I don't know what I'm trying to say, surgical help to fix you. Um, instead of learning, like giving you the, 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 helping you realize that you have the freedom to do whatever you want with this body and that body is a gift. And this is just getting sold where you get people that seem like people, people that just seem normal that will fight to defend this idea that there is something so deeply wrong with you and your self-hatred is so valid that you need surgery. Okay, Josh Slocum on his podcast, Disaffected, he brings to light a lot of these, um, whether they're drugs that are used or um, surgeries or procedures that are done. And he mentioned this person called Jazz Jennings, which I don't even know. I thought that was like one of Bruce Jennings or Caitlin Jennings, like kids or something, but maybe it is. I don't know. But they evidently like wanted to have, I forget if they were a girl and then they wanted to be a boy, but they, there was such damage done to their genitalia that they had to use part of the person's colon, I think it was, to make a little tiny micro penis. Oh my God. It was like, it was so absolutely um, over the top. I can't even like, oh my God. And check out the sane surgery of phalloplasty. Ever wonder how a woman who wants to be a man gets that dick? Did she just like, does the doctor have a drawer full of dicks he pulls out? Well, somebody said they thought they were just the ones that they took off of men that wanted to be women. But that's not, that's not, <laughs> that's actually, not that's how not they true. do it. They cut meat off of her forearm, leaving just the skeleton and tendons, this grotesque skeleton arm, well, I think and, shape it, yeah. and shape it into something that resembles a cock. And most people that have the surgery have to wear a glove for the rest of their life to hide this horrible, horrible scar they now have on their arm so they could have the facsimile, not the reality, of a cock. And this is considered sane. Our culture is teaching us this is a sane thing to do. Celebrate these people. These are heroes. I'm not condemning people that do this. I'm saying we need to protect these people. We need to help these people. These people have an understandable... Uh, what would I say? Mental illness. We're all suffering from a mental illness. It's fucked up times we're living in. It's if they're having an identity it. crisis, I can understand that. We're all having a fucking identity crisis. But the answer is not to like make rich doctors richer by mutilating these fucking people. And it's, the people including children. And this is what our culture teaches us. This is sane, but this guy over here that questions the government... <laughs> That's a fucking conspiracy theorist. He's nuts. This guy over here that's living out of his minivan, that guy is insane. <laughs> um, yeah, and just along with that, you know, we talked about, like, diversity. Like, I'm not saying that people don't feel like they're, you know, born in the wrong body. But it's what you do with that. Like, we started talking about, you know, the, the Buddhist philosophy or, I mean... It doesn't have to just be Buddhism. It's looking at your shit. 
Yeah, it's not helpful. It's making them a customer and a patient for the rest of their lives. The only thing, this paradigm, that you can be born in the wrong body, and the answer is to change the body rather than to change the way you feel in the body. And take drugs, too. The only person that really fucking helps is the people profiting off of that. And God damn it, quit letting them butcher your kids. Yeah. And just one other thing to add to that is um, when I was looking up the terms like gender identity disorder, that was the name that was given uh, to the insanity of uh, transgender until 2013 when it was changed to gender dysphoria, which takes away a little bit more of the stigma that's around like having a disorder. But in that same article, it was talking about this word gender nonconformity. Because remember, we have to have a word and a label for everything. And Words have power. I was thinking, like, I, I actually don't have the definition in front of me of gender nonconformity. But I'm going to be real upfront and honest with you listeners. I think it's kind of self-evident. I, yeah. When If I was growing up as a teenager or even younger in today's world... I might think there's something wrong that I was born in the wrong body. Okay? Like, Gumby and I joke about, like, man, you're like, meaning me, like, man, you're like, whatever, this or that. Uh, what, do you, what do you say most? No, don't make it like I'm joking. You make these jokes. I just follow your lead on this shit. Well, anyway, I, I wouldn't even say that I was so much of a tomboy. I would say, like, you know, we heard this story on um, Disaffected of a child, like, not even two years old, that says, I don't like 18 wear... months, one and a half. Youngest transgender person, uh, I think that's at least been covered in the media. Ever, yeah. This um, this baby didn't want to have their hair put in pigtails, they hate, baby girl. They hate pink shoes, and they hate pigtails, and these Therefore, parents... Therefore, they must be born... They, they must have been born in the wrong body. So these parents are helping this little girl one and a half years old, become a boy. And if you're, if you just think like, well, you know, I'm cool with that. Fucking research, do the goddamn research, educate yourself about what it does to a person's body to have this stuff. It's not just like they switch you around like Mr. Potato Head and now you're a fucking boy and it's all keen and good. It doesn't work like that. It does not fucking work like that. I'm not talking about an opinion or a conspiracy theory. Fucking do the research. Listen to Josh Slocum. Anyway, no, I really like him. But, um, yeah, I, I'm just thinking, like, of all the things that are considered insane, I, I'm not sure there's much more insanity than, like, trying to build a body part or dismantle a body part to rebuild it to make you into the other sex. That's not what that is. I thought for a while I hated uh, trans people, not because I was like, oh, they're monsters or whatever, just because they were such fucking assholes with this cancel culture and shit like that. But what I've come to realize is they are victims of one of the most ugly fucking marketing campaigns that I've witnessed in my lifetime. And it's part of a much bigger thing. And these people need to be allied with and they need to be talked to and they need to be whatever we can do to fucking educate what's actually happening here. But the good news is you're not against the trans movement if you're seeing this. More and more people that have uh, done these surgeries, that have been part of this, this culture, are stepping out and speaking up that this was a mistake. 
I was fucking co-opted. So, you know, the, the sanity, when I watch TV, if all I was getting was my news from the TV, I would feel so fucking alone. I'd feel like, oh my God, I just better shut up and keep my head down or they're going to fucking lynch me. It's because they're not covering the stories of how many sane people are standing up and speaking out. Find these podcasts, some of these ones we mentioned. You know, if you need to feel like there's other people that think like you do, hopefully we're helping that too. Think, act, and speak up. Don't be afraid to speak up. If you're going to be a pariah, you don't have to be by yourself. There are other people that think like this. And a lot of the things that you don't want to pit yourself against because it feels hateful, don't pit yourself against the people that are being victimized by these things. Pit yourself against the fucking things that's victimizing them. Mm. Yeah, this episode, we covered a lot of angles, and sorry if it was a little bit schizophrenic, but I never said I was sane. Um, do you have anything else you want to add before I read the listener writing? Because it's getting really hot in the sun. Yeah, I don't know. This is just such a fertile topic of sanity. I uh, <laughs> I would just really invite you again, like Teresa's got the list here, if there's something that's like we're really going to regret we didn't cover, I mean, we could make this a long episode if there's something you feel like, man, I wish I'd covered that because there's a lot to talk about here. I think I got a taste of just about everything I wanted to cover. I mean, I could go into a lot more excruciating details, but it just doesn't translate in a podcast. I guess the only thing, a bottom line for me that I would end with is just, you know, like I said, my original thought with sanity was how to stay sane. The most helpful thing that I know of to do is to sit with your shit, Yeah. to sit and follow your breath. I, I do that every day and it is tremendously helpful and to be humble. To recognize that you are fucking crazy. If you don't, if you think you're the sane person against all the crazy people, that's a bad angle. You haven't <laughs> begun to deal with your shit. First, recognize that you, you, whoever you are listening right now, you are fucking batshit crazy. You're listening to two fucking people living out of their vans that are batshit fucking crazy. <laughs> this is crazy talking to crazy. Ooh, if you can fucking embrace that and wrap your mind around that, there's hope. We've got a listener right in from Sean, who wrote to us from Gabriola, British Columbia, Canada. Oh, Canadian accent. Oh, God. Sean says, slobs and busybodies, LOL. Laugh out loud. Enjoyed this. Wasn't aware of it. Thanks for sharing. And that was in response. That didn't sound a Canadian at all. I think you dishonored his homeland. A, a boot. Sorry. Sorry. Um, that was in response to our episode, Fire Trucks Given. And uh, we were doing these pretty regularly each season for a while, but we kind of like backed up because we thought maybe it was too much crazy that we were letting out. But that was like our um, cathartic episodes where we were just saying, fuck you to like so many different things. Yeah, I haven't backed out. I'm, there's another <laughs> There's another fuck you episode coming. I've got plenty. <laughs> Gathering up the new ammo. So I've got uh, just the outro here. If you would like to write to us, um, please visit our website, escapingsociety.weebly, with a B as in batshit crazy. Oh, I did it. <laughs> D- dot com. Um, the that comment, was your first time not saying boy, I believe. Yeah. Um, that's on our uh, front page of the website. On the front page, we've also got links to our YouTube videos and YouTube channel where we have helpful um, videos on how to try uh starting to escape society there and uh, we also have a facebook page where mostly gumby posts uh, 
crazy, insane things like conspiracy theories and, and truths and um, truths that weren't fact-checked by Facebook. Lies. Don't believe a goddamn word of it. <laughs> and uh, we also have a donate button because even though we're trying to escape society, we're still accepting money. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> How crazy is that? Uh, we just don't want to be like a little bit in and a little bit out, which is, oh, that's maddening. You get caught in the zipper like that. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think that's it. Thanks for... Well, I would also add, I want to add, uh, please review us. If you've listened to our podcast, give us five stars if you feel like we deserve them. I mean, I I hear a lot of other podcasts that are just like, give us five stars. I I feel like, you know, if you don't feel like we deserve five stars, don't fucking give us five stars. But if you feel like you really gained something from this, anything, five stars is helpful. Please write us a review. It takes so little from you, and they mean a lot to us, and they help get us out there. And please share our podcast. Um, on Facebook, social media, tell a friend. Um, you know, I feel like we're putting out something, whether it makes you think, whether it gives you information and educates, whether it challenges you and gets you to be more deep in your convictions that we might not share. Um, please share us. You know, help us get out there. And we're really trying harder to uh, not just promote ourselves, but pr- promote other things that you might not have run into, other people's podcasts. OPB. Yeah. So let's start working together more. It takes so little for you to share, so little for you to ri- write a review. Maybe you're not in a situation that you can donate money. Um, but, you know, one of those other things, it means a lot to us. And, yep, I'm, I'm asking you to do it. Sit with your shit. Bye. Oh, society sucks and we don't need it. It's killing your kids, so why do you feed it? They'll tell you to stay, but you don't need to heed it. You can give them the finger. There's no time to linger. So, thank you for listening to our song. It's not very good and it went kind of long. Don't care if you like it, cause we'll be gone. Over that next horizon. We ain't got no Thank mm-hmm. you.